Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Gym Podcast. My name is John Dickinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. I'm also the Chair of the Publications Committee for our parent organization, the American Federation for Medical Research. Our mission is to mentor tomorrow's leaders in medical research. Today, I have the honor and privilege to interview and welcome to the GYM podcast, Dr. Greg Verichotti. Um, Dr. Uh, Verichotti is a professor of medicine in the Division of Hematology, Oncology, and Transplantation, and he specializes in sickle cell disease. He did his medical training in University of Illinois at Chicago, residency training in University of Wisconsin, and then a fellowship training in university, at, at the University of Minnesota, where he specialized in um, hematology and oncology. So September was National Sickle Cell Awareness Month, and so now we take time to focus on this challenging disease, its symptoms, treatment, future directions by one of the national leaders in sickle cell disease, uh, Dr. Vercellati. Dr. Vercellati, welcome to the Jim Podcast. I'm really glad you could take time from your busy schedule to discuss this really challenging disease. Uh, myself, as a physician who cares for those with cystic fibrosis, I reflect on many of the common challenges you and I face um, in our respective fields. Um, both sickle cell disease and CF have undergone dramatic advances based on fundamental scientific discoveries, um, now even to the edge of CRISPR gene editing-based technologies and cures. However, some of the social and economic factors often limit the availability of such some of these advances to our to our patients. Just first for our audience who may have a limited knowledge of sickle cell disease, can you describe the basic genetic defect in sickle cell disease, some of the common symptoms and, and way to diagnose it? Well, thank you very much, John, for inviting me. Uh, it's wonderful to be part of AFMR and JIM, uh, a journal I uh, was part of the AFCR when JIM was uh, uh, first being formulated and thought about. So congratulations, John, on, on your work in the Publications Committee. Sickle cell disease is a result of a single base mutation, a T to uh, A mutation, leading to a change in the amino acids of the beta globin from a hydrophilic glutamate to a valine. This allows interaction of the beta S globin with an alpha globin that upon deoxygenation of the red cell can lead to changes in shape of the red cell, ultimately leading to hemolysis and vasoocclusion. The vasoocclusion is really what is responsible for many of the symptoms of sickle cell disease, which include painful bone crises, terrible bone crises, crises that uh, think about a hammer hitting the uh, your knee out of the blue. Other uh, consequences of vasoocclusion include hepatic, pulmonary, uh, splenic, uh, splenic infarction, uh, changes uh, in the retina uh, with retinopathy, stroke in young people, and uh, a, a lifetime of anemia and dealing with pain crisis. Frequently, patients will 
require chronic uh, opiate treatment. <coughs> Excuse me. And and uh, and unfortunately, John, uh, lifespan is limited. And uh, I I have had the privilege in my career to see remarkable changes uh, in that lifespan. I started medical school in 1972 in Chicago, and I remember at Cook County Hospital uh, with George Honig, uh, the lifespan in 1972 was about 22 years for a male. And today uh, it's well into the 40s and even greater for uh, females. The key to understanding sickle cell disease is understanding the pathophysiology. And many, uh, many uh, uh, great scientists, some of the greatest scientists uh, in molecular and cellular biology have probed uh, the red cell to understand uh, why does the sickle red blood cell change shape? Why is there vascular occlusion? Studies from my colleague, Dr. Robert Hebel here, was really the first to show that sticking to the endothelium uh, is really one of the premier events in a vaso-occlusive crisis. Subsequently, we now understand the role of inflammation, oxidative stress, and ischemia reperfusion injury pathophysiology. I think, uh, uh, again, uh, it's been an honor to uh, be part of this community but yet we still have so many uh, challenges ahead of us. And uh, I do look uh, to the future though, for some very, very bright opportunities. As you um, think about, much of your research has been focused on vascular endothelial biology, redox biology, and how it contributes. How has our knowledge in that field changed over the course of the last 20 years? And how do you think it's contributing to you know, these future treatment options for our patients? Well, I think it, it I, I think there's so many areas where uh, understanding the vascular biology has helped. So for example, uh, understanding the risk of stroke in children and how something as simple as measuring uh, with a transcranial Doppler, the velocity uh, uh, of the blood flow and understanding that those individuals are in fact at higher risk of stroke and that some of those uh, children, uh, if one could prevent the deoxygenation mediated sickling by increasing hemoglobin F either uh, by uh, hydroxyurea or some people are born uh, with it, that uh, specifically or considering exchange transfusions, that stroke can be treated or prevented. The vascular biology uh, also brings in the role of leukocytes and platelets, uh, the role of uh, the innate immune system. That's something I've focused on quite a bit, and the role of, for example, uh, the toll-like receptor 4 in mediating uh, the inflammasome and inflammatory reactions in the endothelium, promoting for example, the expression of P-selectin and von Willebrand factor at the endothelial cell surface, which can stick the red cells and uh, uh, the inflammatory cells, uh, causing the, vaso, the transient vaso occlusion. 
understanding that vascular biology, John, has led us to the use of one of the, the few drugs that we have now that is FDA approved for sickle cell disease, presanilizumab, an anti-P-selectin. Now my patients uh, are receiving monthly infusions of this monoclonal antibody and having less crises and keeping them out of the hospital. That's just one example of many in, in which the vascular biology uh, uh, plays a role. There are other uh, uh, agents coming forward. Uh, the whole risk of pulmonary hypertension, something that you're familiar with, and the role of hemolysis, and as well as cardiac dysfunction and cardiac fibrosis leading to diastolic dysfunction. Probably the most important, uh, most important advance was done when I was in medical school by one of my mentors, Paul uh, Heller and Dr. Simone, showing that 5-azocytidine could cause hypomethylation of the gamma gene and increase hemoglobin F. And that hemoglobin F, that is the gamma globin, uh, preferentially will bind with the alpha globin and prevent the formation of sickle hemoglobin. Subsequently, hydroxyurea was shown to do this, and this is a pill, it's cheap, and now uh, is universally accepted as a treatment to prevent crises and prevent stroke and death. The studies of Russell Ware uh, at Cincinnati and others, especially studies done uh, uh, both uh, in the US and in Africa, show that even children can tolerate hydroxyurea and prevent uh, the sequelae of long-term uh, recurrent vasoocclusions. That, that insight, John, really now fast forward to 2022 is one of the main in, uh, bases for gene editing and gene therapy for sickle cell disease. The ability to use CRISPR or some other form of uh, gene editing uh, of hemoglobin uh, of the hemoglobin F uh, by uh, tickling uh, the erythroid enhancer of the gamma gene can increase hemoglobin F and patients undergoing these therapies then no longer have crises. Obviously, there are other gene therapies, lentiglobin, which are very successful uh, in preventing uh, uh, crises and curing sickle disease with the risk uh, of chemotherapy and myeloablation not uh, to be withstood. I, I, I jumped ahead a little bit, but I just wanted to emphasize the importance of hemoglobin F. Uh, other, uh, other drugs that have evolved, uh, for example, glutamine is FDA approved. And again, that is probably playing a role in changing the redox biology of the sickle uh, red cell, decreasing uh, reactive oxygen species. Another FDA-approved drug, Voxelator, focuses on the pathophysiology, John, of the deoxygenation of the red cell, the deoxygenation that leads uh, to the change in shape 
by changing the oxygen dissociation curve, oxalator interacting with the alpha chain pushes that oxygen dissociation curve a little bit uh, to the left and leads then to a resistance to deoxygenation. The oxygen affinity is higher. And uh, that is another drug that we, we have now in our armamentarium. But many, many other drugs are coming forward. Uh, we still have this challenge though, John, and uh, I, I'd love to talk about this. And that is many of these treatments are very expensive. Many of them are not practical for the worldwide impact that sickle cell has. How are you going to do a bone marrow transplant which could cure sickle cell disease in sub-Saharan Africa? How are you going to uh, pay for the gene therapy at $3 million? Uh, and so we need drugs that focus on this pathophysiology. And that's where my research and many of the others who are focusing on this pathophysiology, this concept of ischemia reperfusion injury. We also focus on hemolysis and the toxic effects of free hemoglobin and how free hemoglobin and heme can activate the endothelium, activate inflammatory cells, and how one could, for example, uh, consume hemopexin and haptoglobin, our protectants against free heme and free hemoglobin. There are now clinical trials that show that hemopexin replacement uh, may be effective, uh, certainly in mouse models, but are now being done uh, in, in humans. Other aspects of, uh, of, of that research uh, is the role of ischemia reperfusion injury and complement activation. And we are, my lab is very active in understanding uh, uh, how complement activation uh, can lead to vasoocclusion and pain. We're going to be presenting some of this work uh, at the American Society Hematology meeting this uh, December on complement and pain. So many other drugs that we've, that we've uh, helped develop and worked on, again, focusing on this concept of uh, vaso-occlusion. But John, yeah. like in CF, let's talk practically. I, yeah, our, I patients, our patients suffer. Our patients suffer uh, because of chronic pain, but many are suffering because of lack of resources available to them uh, related to socioeconomic factors. Probably the the, the one area that we really need to address is the transition of sickle cell patients from pediatric care to adult care, just like you have in cystic fibrosis, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought this topic up. This has been something you and I were discussing offline, is um, the delivery of a complex um, you know, medical clinic for a genetic disorder that doesn't just involve one system. It involves multiple systems, pulmonary, GI, orthopedics, gynecology, OB. I mean, it's a, extremely challenging. And then you add in some of the socioeconomic um, equity issues. It really creates for a challenging healthcare delivery 
um, environment. And I was hoping that we could now you could address some of these challenges and maybe ways forward that we could meet these meet these challenges. Well, I, I I'd like to alert uh, the listeners to uh, Pat McGann's uh, uh, article in the New England Journal a couple of years ago about the impact that institutional racism has in sickle cell care and our own uh, unconscious biases. Uh, I think addressing these are so critical and, and, and bringing in uh, patients, parents, community leaders to our centers and listening to them about why are they not coming to the clinic? Well, they have no daycare. They can't afford uh, a taxi. Uh, can they afford the drugs? Uh, they're taking care of their, their mother or their brother. I think many of these factors, in pediatrics, we in, in sickle cell care, we do a wonderful job where we have that multidisciplinary care. They go to ophthalmologists, they see orthopedists, uh, they, 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 they have this uh, multidisciplinary approach. They turn 18 and they go to the adult world where we don't have the centers like we do in pediatrics. And I hate to say this, but you could take a look at uh, mortality and morbidity, uh, and especially amongst young men, uh, sickle cell patients 18 to 24, there's a marked spike in mortality between ages 18 and 24. Much of it, I am convinced, is by lack of a system uh, that is welcoming and comprehensive in their care. I, uh, and I, I think that it is one of the most important things that we could do uh, is build these systems within our systems and, 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 and have social work, addiction medicine. I, I've been so amazed, John, by uh, the brilliance of our addiction medicine doctors helping us uh, deal with uh, 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 chronic opiate use. Uh, buprenorphine, uh, for example, has helped enormously in decreasing the daily oxycodone use. But that's just one of many things. Preventive care, uh, which we haven't, uh, we haven't really talked about. And I think, as you know, in the community, you and I in the university setting and the university medical center can have all of these great ideas, which we know will work, but how do you then implement them? How do you implement that patients actually get on hydroxyurea? How do you implement uh, the uh, idea that uh, there is a stroke risk? How do you implement uh, uh, the uh, health maintenance and in your world, John, asthma, sleep apnea, pulmonary hypertension are huge issues. And pulmonary health are huge issues. Why? Because they lead to deoxygenation and worsening of the vicious cycle of sickling the red cells and leading to ischemia reperfusion. How do we, how do we get uh, a cleaner air uh, uh, in the homes when 
uh, when parents are smoking, and the and the and the son and the children are there uh, with their sickle cell uh, breathing in cigarette smoke. So implementation and dealing with all of these factors are all very critical. I know that might not be uh, uh, that might not be uh, 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 as uh, uh, as exciting as talking about uh, base editing uh, of the uh, uh, thymid, uh, thymidine uh, to adenine, uh, but uh, it is very very important. But how how have you in the group there interacted with patients for education, community outreach, or a um, patient advisory board? Has that been a part of? Well, that that's what we, we 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 have the uh, Minnesota Sickle Foundation. We have a wonderful woman who has brought awareness and counsels us. I I uh, I'm so lucky, John, to have recruited a MedPeds uh, physician, Alex Boucher who's helping build our, our, our sickle cell program and community program. Alex has worked with the community and we have a community board and the American Society of Hematology uh, has what's called the ASH Collaborative, in which again, having a community board is so important. Things like, how do you gain trust about gene therapy, much less really uh, uh, understand it. I, I've done bone marrow transplant, John, for 40 years. How do you really give informed consent? How do you, uh, how do you uh, uh, really build the trust that uh, we have? And, and, and this is uh, probably at the, uh, again, one of the most important things you and I and all of us in, in scientific research need to address is how do we build trust with our communities? Uh, how do we have the uh, sense of equity and inclusiveness in decision-making and, and how we put together our consents and our IRVs, working with the community to build that trust that this isn't just experimentation. But yet, yet again, uh, 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 that's where reaching out to the community is so important. I think cystic fibrosis has done it. Uh, let's face it, the most successful foundation in many ways is the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and what they have done for that community of patients, parents, as well as physicians. So, you know, how do you how do you see us moving forward then, knowing these barriers, knowing the tremendous promise? of um, some of the, um, obviously, uh, stem cell transplant um, or CRISPR-based technologies for curative, but but you bring up a lot of concerning barriers that need to be addressed. What's the way forward, do you feel like, um, over the next 10 years? Well, I think I, I think that I, I give the NHLBI credit for the CURE initiative. Dr. Ed Benz headed it up uh, in really reaching out to the community uh, having patient education, we work very hard, John, on uh, our, our clinical service, uh, not only teaching medical students uh, in first year in biochemistry, second year in the blood course, but John, uh, also on the wards, our hospitalists, our nurses, 
our how do we uh, how do we uh, uh, engage them uh, in our conversations in the opportunities? I think it's it it, it obviously uh, also needs partnership with NIH for not only the basic research but this issue of implementation science and how do we take what we know and bring it to the community. I think our industry colleagues also are very open. If you talk to uh, Bluebird, for example, who has the lentiglobin uh, T87Q uh, beta globin uh, product uh, for sickle cell disease and thalassemia, the thalassemia product has been just FDA approved. But how do we, but they also are very proactive in, in working with the communities. Uh, and educating, uh, educating uh, our, our, our doctors, our nurses. Uh, how do we educate our emergency room physicians that uh, we don't have biomarkers for a crisis? Uh, you can't do a troponin and say, oh, this is a myocardial infarction. You have to just believe the patient, listen to the patient, start the hydration, get them the analgesics uh, that they need right away. And, and rather than having patients wait in the emergency room hour after hour and not uh, uh, getting the uh, uh, pain relief that they need, which just as you know, gets amplified. Uh, I think it's another area of research of pain. And uh, many people have done wonderful work like Kalpana Gupta um, and understanding uh, mechanisms of pain and 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 how nociception and chronic neuropathic syndromes can occur. So as you can see, I'm very optimistic though uh, for for what we're doing. Um, my laboratory has been involved now with I, I believe it'll be four drugs that are IND'd in phase one uh, with the FDA. I think if we can come up with oral agents to to help uh, to help pain and prevent uh, crises, that will be really important. But we'll still need to understand the pathophysiology, and we still need to have that community buy-in and education. Well, I would imagine that that any treatment that's going to address pain and crises um, will certainly improve. Um, community buy-in and patient buy-in. Um, it's probably harder to talk about stem cell therapy where it's, you know, the outcome is uncertain. We're certainly, a, you know, a, um, a palpable and, and sensible outcome for patients that, hey, this is going to help you feel better. We'll right. get more buy-in. Well, I, again, I, I, I only wish uh, I was starting my career uh, and I were in your age group because I'd love to see the advances. And uh, organizations like the AFMR are so important in fostering the careers of uh, young men and women in research. Uh, we also need a more diverse workforce. We need more of a diverse workforce uh, in, uh, for patients uh, to feel that trust. And that's another area where we need to, to, to work on. But John, I think that's about all I have to say today. Um, I, I hope this is helpful. And again, thank you for the opportunity to uh, uh, highlight uh, this important uh, uh, 
disease and the the I if, I'll, I'll tell you one of my other dreams. I, I'd love to see the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball to step up to the plate and and really uh, start uh, a, addressing awareness of sickle cell disease and supporting uh, the basic research and the community needs of our sickle cell patients. That's my dream, <laughs> okay? Well, that's a great dream. And uh, just, you know, we can start a Twitter movement here and just to make sure you put the hashtag in for AFMR uh, and we'll, uh, we'll get it moving. So, All right, John. Well, listen, you have a good afternoon and thank you for the opportunity, okay? You're very welcome. Again, you've been listening to Dr. Vericelli from the University of Minnesota. He's really been an expert, a national leader in sickle cell disease. And um, he's been speaking to us on where we've come and where we're going with this challenging disorder. So thank you very much. And we'll see you next time in the next episode of the Gym Podcast. Bye, John.